Hello and welcome to the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this program is Edna O'Brien, who for over 50 years has been writing about Ireland, and in particular bringing the lives of Irish women to the page with an honesty that had never before been encountered. Poet Thomas McCarthy has called her the Solzhenitsyn of Irish life, and novelist Andrew O'Hagan credits her with changing the very nature of Irish fiction. She's a writer who has won international prizes and awards too numerous to count, but whose career began in 1960, with her first book, The Country Girls, being banned and burned in her homeland. The very first page of her memoir, entitled Country Girl, describes reading and writing as her two intensities, and the abiding impression on reading the book is of a life full of intensities, be they love, which she describes as a transport and a purgatory, or books, or experiences, not least in London during the swinging 60s, when O'Brien's literary world intersected with the glamorous world of film and music. For O'Brien, the intensity and the writing belong together. Describing how an idea for a new novel came to her in a time of suffering, she says, That is the mystery about writing. It comes out of afflictions, out of the gouged times, when the heart is cut open. From a rural Irish childhood in the 1930s, through convent years and growing literary ambitions in the Dublin of the 50s, then elopement, motherhood and divorce, to literary success in 60s London, that feeling of intensity is never far away. When emotional disaster befalls her, it seems she heeds James Joyce's words after an unhappy dalliance. It will never be. Write it. When an unhappy Eastern European nurse says to Edna O'Brien in hospital, Madam, please write book for men about love, because they do not understand it as women's do, she observes, I had not the heart to tell her that the great love stories told of the pain and separateness between men and women. I was lucky enough in this interview to have the chance to ask Edna O'Brien about her intensities, about leaving Ireland, her literary ambitions, and the price that literature demands. Country Girl opens with Edna O'Brien sitting down to begin the memoir she swore she would never write. I asked her what had changed her mind. I think what fundamentally changed my mind was reading more than once descriptions or accounts of myself that were grossly inaccurate. They were uh, also insinuations of my Matahari life, which I am sorry to disappoint by saying I haven't lived. And I found these rather offensive and very cheapening. So I one day was in my, I had finished my short stories, Saints and Sinners, and I was with my agent, Ed Victor, and I voiced a particular concern that after my death, this, or I named two people, might be uh, rushing to write my life. And Ed Victor said, in that case, I think you should do it yourself. And that was what prompted me. Coming home in a taxi from there, I wrote the prologue in my mind because I had just recently been for the, and the phrase, you are broken piano. And I was very excited. That was day one. I was very excited, 
by the kind of freedom and stream of thought or consciousness or whatever that came to me in that taxi ride. So, and I wrote, I always carry a few pens which leak in my handbag, and I always carry a notebook and I always carry a book. So I had material to write on, and I wrote and then came back in, and the garden here was like that. It was just this, this same month almost as now, September, and everything was in its, it is, you, you knew it was as indeed my own life, I suppose, without being too metaphorical, was in its last flowering or its last blooming or its last. And I was filled, filled with vigor and, and the opportunity as well as now the incentive to do it. Well, that was easy. And uh, I wrote a few pages, maybe 20 pages, which Ed Victor showed to, I think it was three publishers or maybe four, all of whom responded very uh, heartily to it. In fact, I think we made a few enemies. One always makes an enemy or two along the way. I wanted very much to be with Faber, and I don't say that because this is for the Faber archive. The writers that I admire utterly, particularly Samuel Beckett and T.S. Eliot, are with Faber, as is some of Joyce. We can't say all of Joyce, that's and then living authors, poets, Philip Larkin, Ted Hughes, Seamus Heaney, that I admire. I just felt that Faber, I had often noticed that when I bought a book, I was interested in reading a particular book. It happened to have that sign. And then of course, there was the little ditty that James Joyce had written when they published Anna Livia Plurabella in a, you know, in a limited edition buy a book in brown paper from Faber and Faber with rings on her fingers and bells on her toes. She shall have ringlets or something wherever she goes. So there was, there was an attachment, there was an intuition. The actual retracing, I was sitting with a friend of mine in the north of Ireland because I had to re-research, if you know what I mean. And I was sitting in the car with David McKittrick, who was a brilliant journalist, reporter, on the north, always has been. We were in the car going to somewhere and it was Ash Wednesday, I remember, and I had the bit of ashes on my forehead. He had brought me at my own request to a Catholic church to get the ashes, talk of masochism, and there you have it. And uh, he said, you're going to have to go back over everything? Oh God, he said. It was a foreshadowing of the pain and the anger and the flounder and all the other emotions apart from the including the, and the labor as well but that's to be expected but all the upheaval emotional upheaval that was poised to come to me in the doing reliving childhood really reliving it, not just remembering it, but going back into what, as far as I could, into what it is to be in a very short dress and navy canvas shoes and a dog clinging to the dress and then to my being. To remember that in its, just to get it, if I could anyhow, as 
precise and as palpable. And to remember convent life, I mean home life of course, and every aspect of it, all the rooms, the downstairs rooms and the upstairs rooms, and the different eventualities in every bit of that house, which I suppose has stayed with me and always will. And then going to convent, and then the hectic change, the hectic life of Dublin and street lights. I mean, when you come from the country and, you know, we had no electricity or plumbing, indoor plumbing or any of that. It was primitive. It was very primitive. The jump in my life from the 1930s to now 200, whatever it is, is, is like something going from the Middle Ages to a technological age. It's a huge leap, a much greater leap than for younger people now living in the country. And all. So the city was a great, ah, it was a great, what is the word when you're given a, a new lease? It was more than a lease of life. It was an excitement and dazzlement and hard work. I think I have never not, I've never had a day's leisure in my life, particularly now, working harder. So there was that change. And then eloping with my husband, which was, it sounds, I don't mean I've made it sound on paper, but it could sound on paper, oh, very um, thrilling and uh, appealing, you know, to elope. But actually, it brought a lot of of trouble and malcontent into my life. My feeling when I was writing that, that part of my married life and being, if you like, rather like, you know, the vows that nuns take. Uh, they take poverty, chastity and obedience. Well, since I've had two children, we can't claim chastity. But certainly obedience we can claim because people nowadays and men and women and feminists would question it perhaps and think what a fool I was, what a masochist I was, what a how servile I was. But I didn't know how to f stand up and fight. I had only one weapon and that was to write. It's both a wand and a weapon, I think writing is. Because the wand part on a lucky day weaves the the magic and the weapon part on a different kind of day wills the truth. I mean the wand part can will the truth as well but the weapon I have said things here that to others Vladimir Nabokov would not approve but that's another story. I admire his memoir very much but it's written beautifully speak memory but it's a very safe memoir. He didn't um, open up the the places, you, you, you know what I'm trying to say. So to, to do that was painful and essential and also always over my shoulder a voice, uh, part of my own voice, not my mother's or my father's or the nun's or my husband's or my children, but a voice of my own saying, it's not be careful because I don't think you can write and be careful, but not to violate a sort of unwritten rule of 
of decency. And I hope I have kept to that or abided by that. So there was that, and then there was my, what I call my second life after I left my husband and left rather summarily out into the street uh, with no money and nowhere to live and having to fight to get my children. It took three years, three very hard years, and in which I saw how they were... They never. They were wonderful. They never uh, luxuriated in their grief, but well, their sorrow. And uh, they were little children, but I could see it. They wanted to be with me. If they had wanted to be with their father, I hope and I think I am human enough to say, well, that is what they want. But they didn't. They they wanted to be with me. There were a lot more advantages. It was easier, it was nicer, but also their father was a quite controlling man. So there was, there was quite a lot of manipulation. I mean, there was an, an occasion where he refused their Christmas presents, gave them back unopened, yes, didn't he? Yes, he gave them back their unopened presents, and they were very hurt by that. But they were young. It's, it's very interesting about trauma or wounds. or They took it... You know, they had shed a few tears and were a bit upset over it. But then they were able to forget it. But I'm sure now they remember it. Because things like that, you buried them, but they, they resurrect. And I think my eldest son, Carlo, felt it more than Sasha, being the older one. And then there was this, the second, so to speak, second life of parties. And I was by then in my 30s, early 30s, but it was as if I had just left the convent. You know, I was started to work immediately and was lucky that I could work. I got published, made a bit of money, but money went further in those days. You know, an advance of £2,000 could do a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure authors today, hearing you, you know, buying a house with the with the film rights or something, it's. I, mean, I suppose it happens, but it's it's it getting more happen. difficult, isn't? It? I mean, oh, in, nowadays it's much more difficult, isn't buy it? Buy a garage for thirty nine. So that was, in a way, when I, I suppose, I was giddy, but I, I also worked. I, I gave these parties, and I was longing for for life and for excitement and glamour and and had it but underneath was still the girl that had grown up with her fears and her ambition both the ambition being to write so there was that era and there were two love affairs which I have touched on the emotional impact, not the gossip or tittle-tattle relevance of them. And then there was the downfall of having, like the foolish virgin, virgins, neglected my work um, in the cause of love and losing my castle, Carlisle Square. And that was an awakening that was rather shocking to me because a writer always lives on a hairline of between having a few bob and not having a few bob. Everyone does, but a writer doesn't know what will come in. 
other people have a salary, whatever it be, big salaries, medium salaries, awful salaries, but they they know what they're going to earn, right? So you think, well, I could, you know, I might have a bestseller or sell for a movie. And you, you can delude yourself, which I'm very good at doing. And I moved to North London, but not for long. I found it so funny about cities. And again, I'm a, I'm not a stranger in London. I've lived here for 50 years, but I only know the parts of London that I know. I'm like, a, I'm an immigrant, this is the word. And the reason I like Chelsea is some people say, oh, you live in Chelsea, how, you know, how posh or how, that isn't the reason at all. When I first came to Chelsea, it was a very human, habitable place, and it wasn't full of oligarchs and all else. It wasn't. It was very friendly. And you can still see signs of that. You can still see in small streets all around here, little streets. If you look up at the windows, you know, the curtains are a little bit shabby. It's not exactly what it's, you know, what the, it's, and I love it for its accessibility or what it seems to me that I know these streets and I know the people in the shops and it has become my uh, in this house and these environs have become where insofar as I ever could in my with my disposition put down roots because the, the book contains I suppose a kind of love letter to New York but but your feelings for London are are more diffuse perhaps or less less articulated well I think Actually, the last chapter, going to the cinema and meeting the woman, Irish woman, and the, is an affirmation of, of, yes, it's a love letter to New York, but it's also transitory. Mm. You know, there was always the return ticket. Whereas in London, there were the, the bright days and the black days. There were all the days, and most of all, the working the working days. It's funny, a lot of people who, and I write about the country and Ireland and nature and landscape are very uh, ever present in me. And yet, to tell you the truth, I could make no fist of living in the country. I like living in a city and I particularly like living in this city. I go out less than I used because I'm older and tireder. I also am not as good on the feet as I used to be. So there are Londons that I have no knowledge of whatsoever. I mean, London is now, uh, there's a market near here, well, it's fairly near here, it's the North End Road. And I sometimes go there, they have vervey and tea and lovely spices, things you don't easily get in this area. Just to walk down or to sit outside, there's a Lebanese cafe where I sit and have a cup of coffee. And the patron always comes out with one of those little sugared pastries that he insists I eat. And just to look at the faces and overhear uh, voices and language that I wouldn't know what country it's from, is realising what a vast cosmological place London is and I know none of it except to walk down the North End Road but I don't know what these I don't know what they're saying or what they're thinking or where they're from or what they hope so you could say I I live in a 
in a corner of it. But that's all I can do. And going back to your childhood, I, I wondered how and when you became aware of possibilities beyond the confines of, of family expectation and church and authority? Because clearly, you know, you talk about getting to Dublin, but was that desire to, to make something, to do something, to go beyond the bounds, was that, was that present from an early age? I think, actually, it's a very interesting and, and valid question. I think I thought two things. One was that I was trapped, not that I would have used the word, I wouldn't have articulated the word is what I mean, but this was my fate, to be a good child and protect my mother and so on, but that in my imagination I would break out. So I had both, and at the risk of sounding conceited, which I I really don't want to sound. The nearest I can liken it to in terms of just that divided self, the inner self, the secret self, is what I have read and in the lives of and also have seen in the work they did of the Bronte sisters. That they were there they were coughing away in in cold Haworth or however you pronounce it and yet imagining these extraordinary lives steeped in intensity and in love and romantic love. And even, I don't know, I didn't read the Brontes when I was living in County Clare because we didn't have any books. But my little girl thinking would have been along those lines, that there was a world of, of rapture, of a troubled world, but a world of rapture which somehow could be found in a book or could be created in a book. And when you went to Dublin, I suppose you still had those twin selves because the dutiful part of you was training to be a chemist, but all the while you were you were dreaming of meeting poets and, and entering a, li- a literary world. Except I didn't, I didn't make it. I didn't make it. I was aware of it. and um, You know, Dublin was a much smaller and more again, a friendlier city. And also you heard everything. You knew when Paddy Kavanagh uh, shouted at someone in a pub. You know, the smallest piece of news passed from mouth to mouth. So in Dublin, I I met some journalists from the radio station. But I once, I saw Patrick Kavanagh, because he was the reigning poet. And I the other genius, and he was a genius, was a newspaper man called Miles Nagopoulin, who writes under the name of Flann O'Brien. And I I saw him once, but I never met them. The only one I met who I should really have mentioned in my memoir, thank God he's dead or he will be cross with me. It was a literary magazine called The Bell, of good quality, I mean high quality, and that was edited by two authors, two authors. One was a Sean O'Fuelon, who was well known, and the other was Pather O'Donnell. And Pather O'Donnell was in the Bell office every day, well, maybe for two days a week or something. But he was there in person. Sean O'Fuelon was lived out in, you know, one of the rather grander suburbs, or it seemed grand. And I wrote this story. Oh, 
gosh, I wish I'd kept some of them. And I was forever getting rejections, probably with good cause. Probably they were not very good, not very realized, and not very mature, and not literature. And I got an encouraging letter, albeit a rejection, from Pather O'Donnell in The Bell, in which he said, if I were, I would like to talk to him, I was welcome. Well, that first half day from the chemist shop, and it was somewhere upstairs, um, you know, a magazine not with much money, or somewhere off O'Connell Street, and there was Pather O'Donnell. And he was absolutely lovely to me. He was a writer, and he wrote about his life and his own people in a, who were from Donegal and an island off Donegal. Hard, uh, hard, shriven lives, but tenacious. And he befriended me. And I sent him things I was writing, and I never made it. I never got published in the bell. And one day he said to me, you haven't read enough, you must read more. And it was very good advice, because a lot of people who want to write are both so desperate to do it and ambitious, I suppose, but ambitious in a rather, in a rather unwise way. Uh, they just want to, uh, to be to be read, to be accepted, to be a writer. To sort of enjoy the trappings without the hard work. Without the hard work and without the dedication. And it was very, very good advice. And I remember when he said it to me, I shed a little inner tear because I thought, oh, he doesn't think I can do it. I, I love it. And I think what changed me from being an embryo writer to being a writer were two things. The cut, the enormity of the cut from Ireland and my mother and father and my own people and my own landscape to this alien country, which it seemed to me when I came here and the gravity of the mistake I had made vis-a-vis -vis my marriage. Those two things were huge. So I jumped from being a fairly, not silly, because I don't think I was, I don't think I was lighthearted enough to be silly, but from a fairly, you know, enthusiastic, gushing young girl with notions to write, to being a more serious young woman with a determination to write, if that makes sense. And do you think, because you, you emphasise the fact that you met your husband was, was almost an accident. Someone rang you up and they yeah. may have rung up somebody different and, and history yeah. would have been different. But do you think you would have gone beyond Ireland in any case, even if it hadn't been in that way? Were, were you already I think I ready would. to leave? I think I would. I think in me was the was the, the realisation that I would have to get out. It was the repression and suppression and censorship was in every walk of life. 
it was, I mean, the part in Dublin of the Dublin section where I have written about Archbishop McQuaid and the, you know, and his cohorts, sodalities and everything. It was, you know, your very thoughts were observed, let alone your words or your deeds or your writing. And I think something in me told me that this was strangling, that you just, I mean, it's not the same now. There are a lot of writers, very good writers, living in Ireland, and they can function there. But I was a, a woman, a woman as well, and it was much, and still is, harder for a woman who is an artist than for a man. It is. First of all, the well, it's perceived differently. Well, that's another story. That would be the next, when you come the next time with the, with the recorder. I would have got out, yes. You know, our fate is our fate. And although my elopement was very flurried and very hurried and due to almost an accident, nothing is an accident, really. It, I wanted to break out, and that's how it occurred. Through that meeting Ernest Gabler and he he was definitely a man he was a cultured man and a very very he was very intelligent so he brought me willy-nilly to pastures new and I thank him for that he also brought me to pain that I had never foreseen it never occurred to me but I have since seen a lot of it, that by wanting to be a writer and actually achieving it somehow by the skin of my brain, that such a jealousy would come from it. He says to you, when he's read The Country Girls, I think, you can write and I will never forgive you, which yes. is a terrible, both a recognition and a, yes. a terrible a, pronouncement, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And I'm not going off the subject, you'll explain why. There are wonderful fairy tales, and I wish I could remember the names of them now, but I read them long, long ago, in which a child with a particular quality could be a particular beauty or a talent or something, incurs the wrath of others. Sometimes it's parents, sometimes it's sisters and brothers, sometimes it could be even children. And talent, especially writing talent, does that because everyone at moments in their lives, often crucial moments, has some yearning to be a writer, to express the deepest or the deep things they are feeling. And the person who can do that is often a person who gets punished for being able to do it. It's almost an unconscious jealousy, but I have being the butt of it more than once and quite tellingly and quite upsettingly. Well, there's an extraordinary scene in the book, Edna, after The Country Girls is published and the furore it has created, where you go back to a public meeting and it's almost like 
you know, the patriarchy calling you to account to explain yourself. How could you do this? How could you write these things? How could you say these things about Ireland? And you're being, you're, you're sort of loyalty to Ireland is being questioned because of the things you've dared to express. And it's, an, it's like a trial almost, isn't it? Did it seem, did it seem like that to you then? Yes, sort of like, um, like a witchcraft, a witch hunt. Yes, I think that's a, that was a slight, that's slightly different to. There would be the jealousy indeed, but the slings and arrows or sticks and stones after the publication of all the first five or six books emanating from Ireland were to do with shock and with shame. They felt, as my mother felt, that I had betrayed them. They felt that the country girls was an indictment of them, of priests, of nuns, of convent, and it wasn't. It's full of feeling, it's full of pain, it's full of yearning, it's full of whatever, many things. They couldn't help it, to tell you the truth, because there were no books. There were no books. When I was researching one thing for this memoir, I went to a library in Collingdale, where they have all the papers, Malta, and I found the provincial newspaper, the Clare Champion, from our county, but it was, came once a week. But I was reading it, and there I saw that in West Clare, which was about 40 miles from us, there was a travelling library. And women were, the houses then had half doors, that the top half of the door would open, and you could lean out over the half door. Originally it was from stables that the horse could put its head out and breathe, while the humans could do the same. And the people had well, heads over the half door waiting for this little van that came with two or three books. And the principal things that were borrowed was the life of Daniel O'Connell, the Catholic liberator, and some weeping novel, you know, oh, like East Lynn or some wasn't East Lynn, but something. So I grew up in a society and among people for whom my book whoever had written it, but more because I was a woman, a local woman, came as a shock because they hadn't read any books. So they are not really, the society as a whole has to take responsibility for that, the ignorance and the inculcation of the Catholic Church and rather illiterate Catholic priests who only knew one thing, which is to put the fear of God into people and the fear of priests just as much as the fear of God. So that that public meeting which I attended, mind you, I was quaking within, was to be expected that those people would feel that I really deserved a bit of a beating and also that I had let them down. But as you probably remember in it, there was also a terrible audaciousness of would I clarify once and for all whether I was going to come back and live in Ireland. So, you know, they were very territorial and very blindfolded, actually, except when you're in the midst of it, you're not quite as, what shall we say, quite as equable about it as that. Now, you mentioned the swinging 60s, and 
I suppose anyone who's familiar with the literary world today will be surprised by the degree to which the literary and the the film world, the, the, all the glamour and the you know Paul McCartney, Robert Mitchum, Marlon Brando, these were people who would you know come to your house or Paul McCartney would would um, play but for one of your your, chil- your children. <laughs> Tell me what it was like living through that time. Was it? Did you really feel like you were at the centre of of no, something? No, I never thought I I, I never thought I was the centre of. Maybe to an outsider, I might have been. And sometimes people surprise me by saying, "Oh, you were, you know, you came into that party." To myself, no, because the the person inside the person was always surprised, sometimes dazzled, and also I want to find the absolute right word. I met those people, and they did come to my house, and they did have my hospitality and I did seem in charge of myself and my situation uh, which maybe is a bit of acting not that I felt I was acting but that part of me was able to do that I wasn't overawed by them at all if Chekhov came to my house I would be overawed for sure Although Samuel Beckett came to my house. Samuel Samuel Beckett came to your bedside. That's one of my favourite scenes, I think. That's such a wonderful, laconic scene. As I say, he was very used to (laughs) sick rooms (laughs) and lunatic asylums. But just to go back to um, the names you mentioned, what I felt was that this was a moment or an encounter that was, by chance, came my way that was in transit. I didn't feel, oh, I'm going to marry a rock star or I'm going to marry a, an actor and, and uh, travel around uh, in yachts. And, and uh, I never felt that. And to tell you the truth, I never wanted that. But I was glad and consider myself very lucky to have met such a melee of people, some of whom were very interesting. There's a, there's a very memorable moment in the book where you're six months pregnant and you're reading the end of Madame Bovary and you're weeping over it and you're wishing life could have the intensity of of, fiction. fiction. But it's, I mean, without without comparing you to Emma Bovary, it does seem to me that you have lived your emotional life with great intensity. That, 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 that's the word which seems to me to mark the way that you experience emotions and love and love affairs. So yes, (laughs) isn't healthy. I think, yes, the intensity of of Emma Bovary, that scene, as you mentioned, I, I'm glad you liked that scene. I'm, I'm rather fond of it myself. And it's true that a great writer, as Flaubert was, and thank God there are some great writers that have been down the centuries, can make us feel more than we know we feel. That's what literature is. Nietzsche said, we have art lest we perish of truth. I would say we have art lest we perish of deep, deep feeling. The last question really is also also has Flaubert uh, at its at its origin. You quote well. You you say at one point Flaubert's mother said that words had hardened his, words heart. hardened his heart. Can Could I that be true? true? And I just wanted to finally. Do, I mean, do you think you have paid a price in some ways for literature? Yes. Has literature had it come at a Absolutely. cost? Absolutely. I'm a writer, uh, yes, and it's a price I willingly paid, so I can't call it a sacrifice. 
the phrase was uh, Flaubert's love of language had hardened his heart his mother felt it and this is the interesting thing because he lived in the same house as his mother well in the I think maybe they had two houses in the same it's not that he withdrew from her but he was he lived his inner life his working life his writing life yet when she died from her chair he took her shawl that became then his shawl his talisman so that what it is the writer both feels things more and sometimes manifests these feelings less to the people around him or her so there is a there is a cutoff that baffles and sometimes hurts people uh, that would like more i for instance am not able to see or be everyday palsy with lots of people who might like to see me I can't do it I have only so much energy and I have that energy is literally poured into what I'm trying to write and that has been the case I have never except for a bit of a bit of a of a hiatus in Carlisle Square I have never not written for 52 years that consumes me but it also when, when Flaubert's mother said had his heart the word I would have used or she used the word she wanted to use but what I would say is the love of language and of getting the language right and all that so obsesses the doer that everyday feeling and connection and communication is deferred it never probably will happen but it's the writer doesn't you always think I always think next year when I have more time when I have written my next book three years from now I will have more time I will write lovely letters to people etc etc this is the cardology I tell myself but the habit has already formed and yes, it's a price, and everything comes with a price. Edna O'Brien. Country Girl is out now in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.